Hello, hello there. Welcome to MMA Fight Club. I'm the host, Manny Galarza. Today we're talking about UFC ABC3, Ortega vs. Rodriguez, coming up on Saturday, the 16th of July, with an 11 a.m. Eastern start time. Yes, you heard me correctly, 11 a.m. in the morning. 12 total bouts in the card, no championships on the line, but we got some exciting fights to talk about. We'll go over each fight one fight at a time, give you a full breakdown, give you our pick to win, discuss some prop bets. The main event's going to feature a battle between Brian T. City Ortega and Yair Rodriguez. The co-main event's going to be Michelle Waterson versus Amanda Lemos. And we also want to mention we've got Jack Shore on the card, the undefeated fighter at 16-0 from Wales. He'll be squaring off against Ricky Simone. All right, guys, let's jump into the card. Here we go. We've got a female bout, Jessica Penne, the veteran, versus Emily Decody. Now, Decody's making her UFC debut coming up from Invicta. I've covered some of her prior fights. Off the rip, I'm going to tell you I am favoring her to win the fight. Now, some particulars here in these two fighters. It's a strawweight bout, 115 pounds. Jessica Penny's 14-5 overall, 2-3 in her last five fights. Slight dog here, plus 125, plus 130 on money line. She's based out of Laguna Hills, California, 39 years old, 5'5 five five in high weight, 67-inch reach. She trains out of Alliance MMA, a very good gym. As for Emily Dakota, who goes by Gordina, she's 11-6 overall, 4-1 her last five fights. She's a minus-150 favorite on DraftKings out of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, 28 years old, 5'2 in height with a 64-inch reach, and she trains out of American Top Team in Oklahoma City. Now, as for the numbers on Tapology, Dakota is the favorite, getting 63% of the votes, 37% coming in for Penny. Let's talk about the profiles of these two fighters. As for Emily Dakota, she was born in Los Angeles. Her nickname is Gordina, which if you translate that in several languages, it translates to chubby, like kind of chubby fat. She's not fat at all, so not really sure where that name came from. She wrestled at Los Gatos High School in California. She finished runner-up at state championships her senior year. She's a brown belt BJJ. She had a 4-2 amateur record. She lost her pro debut way back in 2015 to Emily Whitmire, who was on The Ultimate Fighter. Whitmire went on to have a 2-3 UFC record. Unfortunately, has been let go by the UFC, but now she's currently fighting Invicta. She studied Muay Thai and BJJ. She has a Taekwondo black belt. She fights out of an orthodox boxing stance. She's the current UFC Invicta strawweight champion, as we mentioned before. She's fought in Bellator, Invicta, and Extreme Fight Night, and she has an overall record of 4-4 four four in Bellator. Now, her prior opponents, she just fought two months ago in Invicta, defending her title against Alicia Zapatella. She was a minus 225 favorite. Pretty dominating performance for her. The fight got stopped in round two by the doctors, but she was kicking the shit out of Zapatella. She lost twice to Lima McFarlane. McFarlane is 11-2 currently and in Bellator. The first time she lost her 2016 was by decision. The last fight was about five years ago. She lost to her round five via armbar. She was a plus 250 underdog. She fought Kanako Morata. She lost to her by split decision. Close fight. Now, Murata is currently 1-1 in the UFC. Then she also fought Daniel Taylor, 2021, so just last year had a round one TKO win, and it was a very impressive knockout. It was a combination knockout where she put together several punches, and it was just very impressive. Shows you the technique and the striking ability, and that's really what her strong suit is. When it comes to Dakota, on the feet, she should have a big advantage here over Jessica Penny. Now, the things I like about Emily Dakota, the things I like about her game, very good finishing ability. Four of her last five fights, she's won them by a finish, one by submission, and three by TKO. She's also fought a very good strength of schedule, including some UFC-level fighters and obviously had a 4-4 four four record in Bellator. And she has very sharp boxing skills and technique. When she boxes, her hands come straight out. They come right back to the guard. You can tell she spent a lot of time working on her boxing technique. I like also the way that she takes her time in the fight. She doesn't come out flailing and being too aggressive. She sort of downloads what her opponent's doing, makes adjustments, and then little by little sort of picks up the pace. And lastly, she does great work to the body. You gotta love a fighter who doesn't just headhunt the entire time, actually get some body shots in there. That's gonna force Penny's hands down, which will 
open up her head. I imagine if the fight goes to full three rounds, there's going to be some damage on Jessica Penny's face. She tends to be a little bit bleeder, kind of got a big nose. I imagine at some point over the course of three rounds, Emily gets to her, creates some damage. Now, my concerns here for Emily Cody. she did fight just two months ago. Granted, it wasn't a long fight. She looked very good, but it was just two months ago. Hasn't had a long layoff. It's her first fight in the UFC. It's her debut. A lot of fighters lose in that situation, even fighters that are very good who go on to have a very good career. Jessica Penny has a way of ugling things up. She's a veteran. She's smart. Look at her two fights ago against um, Godinez. She was a big underdog, came in there, and just did just enough to get the judges to give her the decision. Now it was a split decision, of course. It was very close. Do you want to bet here against a veteran who can make it ugly against someone making their USC debut? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Anyway, back to my points of concern for Emily Cody. She's good with her hands, amazing hands, good boxing, but doesn't do much with her legs. Her grappling defense is okay. She's going to have to do a very good job of defending grappling attempts, submission attempts, even on the feet. You've seen Jessica Penny climb up on people. She did it against Godinez and backpacked her for almost an entire round. Emily has to be careful to ward off those attempts and keep this fight at distance. And that's easier said than done against a UFC veteran. Okay, let's talk about Jessica Penny, the veteran. Her first pro fight was in 2006, so she's been a pro for 16 years. Wow. She fought in Bellator and Invicta prior to the UFC. She was on season 20 of The Ultimate Fighter. That was back in 2014. She made her UFC debut in 2015. She's currently on a two-fight winning streak. Now, if you remember, back in 2017, she got suspended by Osada for some accusations about her taking the sauce. Ends up that after some arbitration, appeals, whatever, all the accusations were recanted. All the charges were dropped. Full clean slate comes back 2021, four years later. That was a bit of a hiccup in her fighting career, but it should be mentioned she's been cleared of all those accusations. And on a personal note, she has an OnlyFans account that I guess is fairly successful. She's not showing her booty and stuff on there. It's a, a foot thing. So for the people who like the foot fetishes, uh, look up Jessica Penne. Now, as for her most recent opponents, she fought Carolina. She won round one via armbar as a plus 120 underdog. You see the grappling expertise. You also see Carolina make the mistake of going to the ground with her when she didn't have to. Jessica Penne will literally sit in the ground, will lay on her back, and she'll try to grab your ankles and pull you down. Unless you have amazing BJJ skills, don't go down there with her. That's her only way to, you know, victory. That's her only path. So Carolina was the most recent victim. Now, she fought twice last year. Early in the year, she fought Lobita Godinez, came in as a plus 225 underdog, surprises everyone, shits all over my parlay. Not just me. A lot of people had Godinez. And at the end of the fight, you thought still maybe Godinez won in the scorecards. And yet we get a split decision and it goes on the side of Jessica Penne. Not only does she backpack, <laughs> she front packs, if you can imagine this. Like she's on the front of Godinez for a very long time, like a koala bear, for a long period of time. And Lopita didn't try to slam her down. Lopita showed very low fighter IQ in that fight. Now, Lopita recently, if they were to fight again, I think Lopita completely dominates her. She's gotten better and shows some improvements. But in that fight, Godinez was just frustrated by the grappling and the holding. Jessica squeezes out a decision that I don't know if she won that or not, but she got that win. Prior fights, she lost against Jessica Andraj and Joanna Jacek. She lost to both of them by KO, round two and round three, respectively, 2015, 2016. I think it tells you the story of Jessica Penny against average or or new fighters, like in this case, Dakota, who's very new, first UFC fight. She's competitive. She can mix things up. She can be complicated. She's not amazing on the feet, but on the ground, it's like it's a pain in the ass with her. Now, the things I like about Jessica Penny, first of all, she's a pretty damn good finisher. The numbers don't lie here. Of her last six wins, four of those have been my finish. Now, clearly her path to victory for finishing is submissions, but nonetheless, she's getting those finishes. She's a very crafty veteran, as we mentioned before. She has the ability to make fights close against fighters that maybe she's not as good as. Now, as for my concerns for Jessica Penny, one of them is very obvious. Her striking game is limited. The actual technique, it doesn't look that bad. It's pretty clean. 
but there's no power behind that. When you look at the way she's built, very lean, and so there's not much power there. She may land a few things, but power-wise, there'll be a big advantage for Emily Dakota. She's also not a very active fighter. She fights about once a year, whereas you've got Dakota coming off of a fight two months ago, a little more active. May this be her last fight? We've been seeing a lot of retirements recently from fighters. I don't think so. She's coming off of a two-fight winning streak, but the reality is she is 39. She's fighting a younger fighter. I think over the course of these three rounds, you see round late round two, round three, things get a little tight. I think that's when you see the younger fighter be a little more explosive, a little fresher. And for Jessica Penny, she needs to get the fight in the ground, clinched up, not at distance. If those things don't happen, she's going to show every bit of that 39 years old. But the fights we watched have been on this film. We watched Dakota versus Mirandin, 2019. Dakota versus McFarlane, 2017. Penny versus Carolina Kawakaisik, 2021. And Penny versus Godinez from also last year, 2021. If you want to watch any one of those four fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube and you'll see those four links available in the description. My final few thoughts on these two fighters. Experience-wise, of course, I give the edge there to Jessica Penny. She's been fighting in the UFC longer, has fought some pretty good fighters, two-fight winning streak in the UFC compared to Emily Ducote making her UFC debut. As for fighter IQ, about the same. Neither fighter does anything stupid in there. They know where their strengths are and they know where their weaknesses are. In terms of cardio, I'm going to give the edge here to the younger fighter just strictly because of age. And they both have finishing ability. Emily Dakota on the feet with her hands. I can see her finishing the fight via TKO or having Penny just sort of ball up and not return punches. And with Jessica Penny, of course, via submission. So I'm not surprised if we see a finish in this women's fight. For striking, the clear edge goes to Emily Dakota. For grappling, the clear edges with Jessica Penny. Now, a few props I want to consider for this fight. Emily Dakota to win by decision. My thinking there is this. She's able to keep the fight in the feet for all three rounds. Maybe she hurts Penny, but she does just enough in the scorecards to win. Penny's pretty durable. She knows how to take a beating. Emily Dakota by TKO. I like that prop, especially the later round TKOs, like round two or round three. My thinking is Jessica Penny will start wearing damage on her face. She'll start taking a lot of punches, will not return punches, will have a TKO more because of her not returning fire and just giving up, not because she's actually hurt. Now, Jessica Penny by submission. You got to look at that prop. And I'd say again, look at round two, round three. I think round one's going to be more of a feeling out process, but a round two, round three prop by Jessica Penny makes perfect sense. And then, of course, Jessica Penny by decision. If she just makes it ugly, enough control time, you can see her winning, getting her hand raised on a very close decision as the veteran the fight going over two and a half rounds that prop is available that's minus 200 a little chalky but it's a women's bout if you fully think it's going to decision or around that range it's not a bad spot as a parlay piece in any case guys i like the first time ufc fighter emily dakota coming in from invicta i think she makes her ufc debut in amazing fashion she's got great hands if you watched her fight before i'd encourage you to if you haven't very sharp great boxer if she keeps the fight in the feet for two of the three rounds she should be successful taking emily dakota at minus 150 to win the fight i think Jessica Penny, the veteran, unfortunately takes a loss. And don't be surprised if maybe she hangs it up after the fight. All right, moving up the prelim card. The next fight's going to be a middleweight bout at 185 pounds between Dwight Grant, who goes by the body snatcher, and Dustin Stolfist, the German fighter. Stolfist is 13-4 overall. 2-3 and three in his last five fights. A dog here at plus 150 in the main line. 30 years old. 6 foot high with a 75 inch reach. As for Dwight Grant, he's 11-5 overall. Also 2-3 and three in his last five fights. I should mention both these guys are coming in here on a losing streak. Grant is a favorite here at minus 160. He's based out of New York City, New York. But now he has moved over to AKA in California. 37 years old in 10 months. So about to be 38 Eight years older than Dustin Stolfus in this matchup. He is six foot one with a 76 and a half inch reach. So there'll be a slight height and reach advantage there for the body snatcher. And look at the numbers on Tapology. It appears that Dwight Grant is the favorite, getting 74% of the votes. I do agree with the public, but man, I have a lot of concerns here. 38 years old for Grant. Don't like that. He's been knocked out in two of his last four fights. A guy who's been pretty durable of his career now recently has been getting knocked out. Just a lot of concerns on both sides. And you got, of course, Stolfis, who hasn't registered a win yet in the UFC. Dwight Grant's landing 3.26. 
strikes per minute, absorbing 2.55. Decent output in a positive ratio as for Stolfish landing 2.87, almost the same volume, but absorbing 3.08, so has a negative striking ratio. For takedown offense, 1.70 takedowns for 15 minutes for Dustin Stolfitz and 0.72 for Dwight Grant. Clearly, Stolfitz is a little more of an active wrestler and a grappler. Takedown defense is 68% for Dwight Grant and 46% for Dustin Stolfitz. I do imagine the path to victory for Dustin is going to include some grappling. If the fight stays at range on the feet, I do give the edge there to Grant. I think he punches harder. I think he's a more natural striker. He's also going to have a reach and height advantage. As for the background of these two fighters, for Dwight Grant, he was born and raised in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. That's the home of Notorious B.I.G. His parents are from Guyana. He's a former world kickboxing middleweight champion. He went 3-1 and one as an amateur. He secured his contract via Dana White Contender Series in 2018 by knocking out his opponent. He has a 3-4 and four UFC record. He has a BJJ purple belt and a red belt in Kung Fu. His prior opponents, he fought Sergei Kondosko. His last fight earlier this year got knocked out round two. That fight was about two months ago. Another red flag here. Older fighter, 38, got knocked out in his last fight just two months ago. Could be too soon, right? He was a plus 100 pick him in that fight. And he did have some good moments. In round one, he knocks down Sergey, Like, hurts him pretty badly. Just can't get the job finished. In round two, Sergey seems to be the fresher fighter. Kind of comes back and then eventually hurts Dwight Grant and puts him down. His prior fight, Francisco Trinaldo, 2021. Split decision loss. He was a plus 120 pick up in that fight. To me, that's a fight that gives you an idea of how durable Dwight Grant could be. Trinaldo hits very hard, and they both went back and forth in that fight. He took some hard punches, showed that chin, showed that durability. His prior fight before that, Stefan Sekulik, 2021, decision win by split decision, mind you. He was a minus 200 favorite. And then one more fight to talk about, Daniel Rodriguez, 2021, I'm sorry, 2020, he lost by round one KO as a plus 170 underdog. So as we mentioned before, again, two of his last four fights, he has been knocked out. And that's a little bit of a concern for a guy who's never been finished in his entire career before these last two losses. Now, things I like about Dwight Grant, he's a very active fighter. It's his second fight this year, and he also fought twice last year. He's also faced pretty good competition in the UFC, not top contenders per se, but just names you recognize. And he tends to be the longer fighter. In this matchup, he'll have a slight reach advantage, a height advantage. That works well for him when he works at range, nice jab, nice long punches, long kicks. He's built as a very long frame. Like his torso is pretty small, but his legs and his arms are very long. Now, my concern is for Dwight Grant. We've talked about some of them already. He's 38 years old. He's in the midst of a rough stretch, having lost two in a row and three of his last four, including a knocked out twice amongst those four fights. He lacks finishing ability himself. His last two wins were via split decision. He also has a loss by split decision in there and just has not displayed finishing ability recently. He slows down at times in fights, just doesn't have enough volume, starts looking for the perfect punch. That's always a problem in the scorecard. Now, Dustin Stolfitz, he's not the highest volume guy either, as the numbers show, but still, you don't like a fighter who slows down for long periods of time in the fight, and Dwight Grant has done that before. Now, as for Dustin Stolfitz, the German fighter, he went 0-1 as an amateur. He also went 0-1 kickboxing. He went pro in 2014. He's been a pro for about eight years. He fought predominantly in the German regional scene when he was first starting out. He was on Dana White Contender Series in 2020. He won his fight, but it was via an arm injury, and that's how he got his ticket to the UFC. He made his UFC debut in 2020. He's now currently 0-3 in the UFC, still looking for his first win. His prior opponents, he fought Gerald Mearshap in his last fight, 2021, late last year in December. Lost that fight via round three rear naked choke. He was a plus to an underdog. If you know Gerald Mearshap, very good at submissions. Eventually, over time, he ends up getting to Dustin Stolfitz. His prior opponent, Rodolfo Vieira, 2021 as well. Guess how he lost? Round three rear naked choke again. So, lost his last two fights via rear naked choke in round three. He was a plus 180 underdog in that spot. He fought Kyle Dacus 2020, two years ago, lost that fight by decision as a plus 250 underdog. Last three fights has lost them and has been an underdog in each of those fights. So the books have been pretty accurate with him. And then the last fight that he did win was against Joseph Pyre. That was 2020, round one arm injury, and that was on Dana White Contender Series. In that fight, he was favored, minus 275. The books have nailed him every single time, whether he's an underdog or a favorite. Now, the things I like about Dustin Stolfus, number one, he's got a pretty damn good finish rate. If you look at his tapology, 
wild you see a bunch of red there at first, but kind of scroll down to his last five wins. His last five wins, all finishes. Three by submission and two by TKO. Mind you, one of the TKOs was the guy with the arm injury. He's a decent fighter. Like, he's well-rounded. He's balanced. Not an amazing striker. Pretty good on the ground. Pretty good at grappling. Decent chin. When he gets finished, it's by submission. Now, looking here at Dwight Grant, is he a submission guy? Not really. He's more of a boxer. From that standpoint, at least Dustin Stolfus eliminates that concern of getting rear naked choke, but has to be careful on the feet because on the feet, Dwight Grant has a bit of an advantage. Now, my concern for Dustin Stolfus, he's on a three-fight losing streak. He's yet to get a win in the UFC. He's been getting beat by average UFC fighters, not top contenders either. So he's got a lot to prove. This is a tough fight to call, guys. If there's anything I want you to take away from this video is not a lot of confidence either way. Someone has to win. I mean, heck, maybe we're going to have a draw here, but someone has to win. If I have to pick that guy, it's Dwight Grant, but I don't love it. 38 years old, slows down at times, been knocked out just two months ago. There's a lot of reasons not to like him. But you start watching film on Dustin Stolfus, and it's like, man, does this guy even belong in the UFC? I'm not trying to be you know, a dick. I'm just saying 0-3 in the UFC, not looking very good, got finished in back-to-back -back fights. So just a lot of questions. And this fight probably belongs down low on the prelim card. It makes perfect sense. But from a betting perspective, I think I'm looking at props here. I can't really confidently choose either side and say I'm going to bet this guy with confidence. There's just a lot of variables, a lot of question marks. Now, the fights we watched in this film, we watched Stolfus versus Mearshat, 2021, Stolfus versus Vieira from 2021, and Stolfus versus Dalkus from 2020. And for Grant, we watched him versus Trinaldo last year, him versus Rodriguez, 2020, Grant versus Sukulik, 2021, and then Grant versus Kandoska from earlier this year. Those seven fights are available down below in the description as part of our free video library. If you look down below here on YouTube, you'll see those seven links. My final few thoughts on these two fighters. When it comes to experience, very similar. You can make an argument that Grant has more UFC experience, but he's only fought 16 total fights compared to 17 for Dustin Stolfus. In terms of fighter IQ, also very similar. Neither guy does anything very stupid in the octagon, but they are a bit one-dimensional. Grant's a guy who likes to fight in the feet. Stolfus more of a guy on the ground. Fighter IQ-wise, very similar. When it comes to cardio, I'm going to give an edge there to Dustin Stolfus. I thought that Dwight Grant looked a little tired in his last fight, and again, 38 years old. So the younger fighter, eight years younger, I'm giving the edge for cardio. When it comes to finishing ability, also very interesting here because you don't think of either guy as being a big finisher, but they do have finishing ability. Now, Grant, not so much recently. Stolfus, all his finishers were before the UFC. Not really sure if that translates to the UFC, but they both have finishing ability. I'm going to give them an equal grade in that department. For striking, I give the edge to Dwight Grant, as we talked about. For grappling, I'm giving the edge to Dustin Stolfus, but man, he's not an amazing grappler either, coming off of back-to-back -back submission losses in round three via rear naked choke, but is a better grappler than Dwight Grant in this matchup. Now, the props that I'm going to look at closely, because again, I don't like choosing either side here. The fight does not go the distance as minus 175. Dustin Stolfus has been finishing back-to-back -back fights. Okay, Dwight Grant's been finishing two of his last four fights. Either Dwight Grant gets to Dustin Stolfus, knocks him down, hurts him, which he did to Sergey, which he did to Francisco Trinaldo. He did knock down Trinaldo as well. He's got power in his hands, so he can knock down Dustin Stolfus and hurt him. For Dwight Grant, he also can get very tired of finished by Dustin Stolfus. So I think the fight knock on the distance at minus 175 is a spot I'm going to consider a little chalky at minus 175. Might be a parlay piece. Now, the other props I like, they're not out just yet, would be the fight starting round two, a TK win by Grant, and a submission win by Dustin Stolfus. Those would be the spots I'm going to consider. There is a very good chance I just passing this fight altogether. I don't like saying that about a fight, but look, there's some realities here. There's some big concerns. Both guys are in a rough streak right now. Someone has to win. If you've got an inside track on this and you have a good feeling about who's going to win, let me know in the comments down below because I'm a little bit up in the air, not sure who I like better or maybe not sure who I like worse. In any case, I'm going to choose Dwight Grand to win the fight. That's your breakdown, guys. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the next fight in the card is going to be a light heavyweight bout. 
at 205 pounds between Dustin Jacoby from Denver, Colorado, and Da Eun Jung from South Korea. Eun Jung, who goes by Seda, is 15-2-1 overall, 4-0-1 his last five fights. Slight dog hair at plus 120 on the money line. He hails out of South Korea. He's 28 years old, 6'4 in height with a 78 and a half inch reach, and he trains out of Korean top team. As for Dustin Jacoby, who goes by the Hanyak, he's 17, 5 and 1 overall, a little more experience. 4 0 and 1 his last five fights as well. A slight favor here at minus 140. He's based out of Denver, Colorado, 34 years old, 6 foot 3 in height with a 78 inch reach. So height reach wise, very similar. About a six year youth advantage for Da Eun Jung. And Dustin trains out of Factory X Muay Thai. As for the public votes on Tapology, it's about down the middle, with Jung getting 51% of the votes, only 49% of the votes coming in for Jacoby. It's a tough fight to call. I think Dustin Jacoby in his best day, in his best moments, when he's fully healthy, wins this fight. But man, I've seen him show some wear and tear recently. Only 34 years old, but like 34 years old in dog years. The guy has been through it, fights a lot, which I like that he fights a lot. At the same time, it's like he fights a lot and it's sort of adding up if you catch my drift. So I like Jung to win the fight, but not a ton of confidence. I think he wins the fight by decision. Now looking at the striking numbers in these two fighters, Dustin Jacoby's landing 5.3 per minute, absorbing 3.75. Good volume with a positive output. As for Daun Jung, landing 4.03 per minute, absorbing 3.77. Not as much volume, but also has a positive output. For takedown offense, 2.6 takedowns per 50 minutes for Daun Jung, only 0.39 for Dustin Jacoby. What does that tell us? Daun Jung is more of a wrestler, a grappler. Jacoby, more of a stand-up guy, kickboxer, striker. As for takedown defense, 58% for Jacoby and 88% for Daun Jung. Now looking at the profile of these two fighters, for Dustin Jacoby, he was born in Colorado. He has a twin brother who's actually a former pro MMA fighter himself. He began training Taekwondo at the age of four years old. He started wrestling shortly thereafter. In high school, he was an amazing athlete. All state in basketball, football, wrestling. I mean, this guy was the man in high school. Unfortunately, he had a terrible knee injury his senior year of high school, which kind of derailed all his athletic plans. He ended up going to a smaller college called Stockton, which is like a Division II school, where he was quarterback for two years while studying business management. He's fought in Bellator, World Series of Fighting, Titan FC, Glory, and UFC, and this is his second stint in the UFC. He was a 2013 Road to Glory UFC tournament winner, which is in kickboxing, 2015 Glory Middleweight tournament winner, and 2016 Glory Middleweight tournament winner. So in Glory kickboxing, he was a top-notch guy. Now, Glory kickboxing is where Israel Asanya fought, Alex Pereira. Very good kickboxing organization, and he was definitely doing his thing there. In 2020, he was on Dana White Contender Series, where he beat Ty Flores to earn his UFC contract. He won his UFC debut against Justin Ledette via round one TKO. He's currently undefeated in the UFC with a 5-0-1 record, and he has the ability to fight with a left-handed stance and a right-handed stance. Now, Jacoby fought back in March of this year. He beat Michael Olesheshik by decision. A very close fight. I want to point out one thing here that's about this fight. After the fight is over, he talks about how he was injured going to the fight. He had a leg injury, and that's why he couldn't do a lot of leg kicks, and that's why he couldn't do a lot of kicking in general. That concerns me. 34-year-old Dustin Jacoby is a guy who's showing wear and tear. He's slowing down. Is the injury recovered? It was just three months ago. Is he recovered from that injury? Is he okay now? Will he throw leg kicks again? Now, part of that, he fought Ian Kutalaba, and that went to a split decision draw. He won round two and three, but in round one, he got 10 which is why it ended up being a draw. Prior fight, Maxim Grisham, 2021 decision win. He also fought Darren Stewart, 2021 round one KO win. He also fought John Allen, 2021 won that fight by decision. Now, what I like about Dustin Jacoby, first of all, he's been favored in his last seven fights. That includes all his fights in UFC. He's also a very active fighter. He's fought 10 fights in about three years. This will be a second fight this year. He fought four times last year, twice in 2020, and three times in 2019. He has a very nice jab. I just wish he would use it more often. And his ability to attack with kicks is there. The issue becomes, is he healthy? Last fight against Michael Olashishik, he did not kick at all because he had an injury. When he's healthy, good leg kicks, good body kick. Just not sure if that's going to be there for this fight. And he's also a very durable fighter. He's been finished three times in his career, twice by submission, and only once by TKO. He's only been knocked out one time. 
and he has not been finished in about seven years. Now, my concerns for Justin Jacoby, number one, the Kutalaba fight. He got ragdolled in that first round. I mean, if you're a good wrestler and you watch that fight, you're thinking, you know what? He got taken on eight times in round one alone. He's also not the best finisher. He's been to decision in his four of his last five fights. And the last but not least, it's the age. It's not that he's 34 years old and too old. It's the activity. He's very active. He's starting to get beat up. He's slowing down. It's noticeable. Watch him five years ago and then watch him a year ago. He's slowing down. He's not as fast as he used to be. He was never the fastest guy, but now he's really becoming much slower, much more plodding. He's a tough guy, but he's starting to slow down. You see the wear and tear. And Daun Jung, who's much younger, should have a big advantage when it comes to like the athletic ability and quickness in this fight. Now, speaking of Daun Jung, he was born in South Korea. He has a 1-0 amateur record. He went pro 2015. He fought in Art of War and Heat Promotions, part of the UFC. He made his debut in UFC 2019 with a win over Cadiz Ibrahimov. He currently sports a record of 4-0-1 in the UFC, and he hasn't lost a fight in seven years. His last few opponents, he fought Kennedy Njuku last year, got a win in round one via knockout. Now, if you just saw Kennedy last weekend, you're thinking, wow, knockout round one must be amazing. Yeah, Kennedy is the kind of guy where he's there sometimes and there he's not sometimes. That's a solid win, yes, but you can't make too much of it. Now, William Knight, he beat him by decision. 2021, also last year, as a minus 140 favorite. Two wins in the UFC, last two fights against guys we recognize, Kennedy Njuku, William Knight. Now, prior to that, a draw against Sam Alvey. Now, this is where I'm like, oh, no, Sam Alvey. Oh, anytime I see Sam Alvey beating you or you go into a draw with him, it concerns me because Sam Alvey doesn't win. Put it that way. He was a minus 300 favorite in that fight. Ends up going to a draw. Not a good moment for him. But Sam Alvey, I guess he's a veteran. Makes things ugly. His prior fight, Mike Rodriguez, 2019. Round one KO win. Nice win, but Rodriguez kind of fallen off, right? Now, some of the things I like about Da Jung. He's not lost a fight in almost seven and a half, eight years. Y'all like that. He's also a very active fighter. This will be his second fight this year, and he also fought twice last year. He's a pretty good finisher. Three of his last five wins have been by finish, including in the UFC. Notably, his path to finishing is by TKO. He's got like two or three submissions in his career. Most of his finishes are by TKO. The only time he's been finished was by submission. That was about seven years ago. Now, my only concern for Da Un Jung, he's fought some okay guys in the UFC. Like, not good guys. Like, very average kind of okay guys so he doesn't have like a signature win dustin jacoby will probably be his toughest competition to date for daun jung we still don't know what he's fully capable of i think the guy's got a high ceiling but still has not had a signature win just yet the fights we watched in this film we watched jung versus alvi 2020 jung versus knight 2021 jung versus ninjiku 2021 jacoby versus stewart last year jacoby versus allen last year jacoby versus kutalaba last year and jacoby versus olosheshik earlier this year if you want to watch any one of those seven fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube in our description. You're going to see those seven links available. All right. So long story short, I like Da Un Jung to win the fight. My biggest concern with Dustin Jacoby is the wear and tear. Like the guy's a really good fighter. I like him a lot. I want to root for him. But at 34 years old, he's starting to show signs of just the wear and tear. I see it. The last fight especially was concerning to me. He beat Olesheshik. Man, it was so close. To me, his biggest battle is just age and wear and tear. For Daun Jung at plus 120, I love him as an underdog. Now, the props I would like for this fight would be the fight going the distance. And then a late round finish, not sure by who, by Jacoby or Jung. The issue becomes again, is Dustin Jacoby healthy? Is he fully back? Are his legs okay? Will he leg kick? And does Da Jung Ung at 20 years old coming here and just have a younger spry more activity? I'm on Daun Jung. The more I think about this fight, the more I have confidence in him. I'm going to bet him to win the fight straight up. Probably put a half unit on him to win the fight. I'm not going to parlay it. I don't have that kind of confidence, but the fight probably goes the distance. That's your breakdown, guys. Go look with this fight. Okay, moving on up the card, next fight's going to be a featherweight battle at 145 pounds between Bill Algio, the American fighter, 
versus Herbert Burns from Brazil. Now, Herbert Burns is the younger brother of Gilbert Burns. He goes by the Blaze, 11-3 overall. 4-1 his last five fights. 34 years old, 5'9 in height with a 74-inch reach. And he trains out of Evolve MMA. As for Bill Alger, who goes by Senor Perfecto, he's 15-6 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. He's a favorite here at minus 170. You can get Herbert Burns on the other side at plus 145. Bill Aljo is out of King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. That's a 30-minute ride for me, very close by. 33 years old compared to 34 for Gilbert Burns. He's 6 feet in height with a 73.5-inch reach. So slight reach advantage there for Gilbert Burns, but a slight height advantage for Bill Aljo. And Aljo trains out of his own gym called Aljo MMA and Kickboxing. Now look at the numbers here on Tapology. It appears that Aljo is the favorite, getting 62% of the public votes on Tapology. You know what? I'm going the other way, guys. I'm on Gilbert Burns to win the fight, but very low confidence here. There's some blind spots in this fight, but getting my pick out of the way, I'm going with Gilbert Burns to win the fight. It's more of a dog or pass pick. Not very confident. Anyway, looking at the striker numbers in these two fighters, Aljo's landing 5.88 per minute. Very high volume, absorbing 4.43. He's got a positive striking ratio. As for Herbert Burns, only landing 1.67 per minute, absorbing 5.02. At first glance, you're like, holy shit, that's a terrible striking ratio. He's not a striker. Strictly grappling, submissions, that's his path to victory. So that's why his striking numbers look a little bit skewed. Now, as for takedown offense, 4.64 for 15 minutes for Gilbert Burns, excuse me, for Herbert Burns, and 0.80 for Bill Aljo. Now, Aljo's a former state champion wrestler, has wrestling ability, but obviously, based upon the numbers, he's more of a striker, whereas Herbert Burns is more of a grappler. Now, for takedown defense, Herbert Burns is defending at 75% rate and 55% for Bill Aljo. Now, look at the background of these two fighters. For Bill Aljo, he grew up in Pennsylvania. He started wrestling at the age of 14 years old, got a late start. He began his high school career 0-14, a rough start. By the senior year in high school, he was a state champion and captain of his team. Like they say, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. He went on to Penn State University, where he did not wrestle, mind you. At Penn State University, he was on the boxing team, full-time student studying finance and he also opened up his own BJJ business where he was teaching BJJ small classroom type of thing and eventually was the beginnings to him now opening up his own gym he went 4-0 as an amateur he lost in Dana White Contender Series in 2019 to Brandon Lofning Lofning went on to fight in Bellator and also in the PFL pretty good fighter he fought in CFFC and Ring of Combat part of the UFC and he's currently 2-2 two two in the UFC his prior fights last fight earlier this year in January he fought Joe Anderson Brito he won that fight by decision he was a plus 135 underdog a solid win against a pretty good fighter prior fight before that Ricardo Ramos 2021 one decision lost. He fought Spike Carlisle in 2020, won that fight by decision. Now, going back a little further, he fought Jared Gordon back in the day, 2017, about five years ago, in CFFC, lost that fight. He also lost by Rene Choke in 2014, eight years ago, to Shane Burgos, and that was back in XFE. I bring this up because I think when you look at Bill Aljo's record, he doesn't have a ton of fights in his record, but when you look at the names that he's losing to, he tends to lose against guys that are like average, maybe above average, and it gives me the impression that maybe that's where he's at. He has a lot of potential, but he can't get over the hump with some of these guys. Now, the things I like about Bill Aljo, number one, much more active than his opponent here. He's fought almost four times since the last time that Herbert Burns fought. He's got a very solid ground game. He's got the wrestling base, good submission defense, only been submitted like once or twice in his career. He's also made some big improvements in his striking. A guy who has a wrestling background, right? Went to college, started boxing, has improved his striking a lot. Now, my concerns for Bill Aljo, he is 2-2 two two in the UFC. He's not lighting it up. He's at a 500 level. And sometimes you are what your record says you are. And he also has very limited finishing ability. All four of his UFC fights and his Dana White Contender Series fight have all got a decision. He's got finishes before the UFC, but has not translated over that finishing ability to the UFC yet. Now, as for Herbert Burns, born in Brazil, he grew up playing soccer and initially studied karate. Actually won a state championship in Brazil for karate like at the age of 8, 9 years old. At 10 years old, he starts doing BJJ because his brothers were doing it. That's Gilbert Burns and his other brother. There's three of them. All three of them have black belts in BJJ. It runs in the family. He has a third degree black belt to be specific. He made his pro debut in 2012. He fought in one championships and Titan FC, part of the UFC. He earned his UFC contract in 2019 with a round one triangle choke win over Derek Minor on Dana White Contender Series. He's 2-1 currently in the UFC. And again, we talked about before, he's coming into this 
this fight off of a two-year layoff. That's probably, to me, the biggest blind spot in predicting this fight. That, to me, is enough to just go dog or pass. Who knows what's happened the last two years? Did he have injuries? Was he training hard? There were some cancellations. I've seen guys come off of two years and come in and look amazing. Some guys come after two years, have a lot of ring rust. His last fight was two years ago against Daniel Pineda. He lost that fight by a crucifix in round two. Mind you, he was a three-to-one favorite, a minus 300 favorite in that fight. Not a great loss, and that was his last fight. Prior to that, he fought Evan Dunham, won round one, rear naked choke in 2020. He beat Nate Landwehr, 2020, round one knee submission. And then, of course, he won a Dana White Contender Series in 2019 via round one triangle choke. He's also fought a guy named Molded Kubalayev. If you don't follow that guy, he's currently in the PFL. He won the $1 million PFL prize last year. He lost to Kubalayev 2017 by decision that was back in one championship. So quality loss right there against a guy who's obviously continued to do very well. And the biggest thing to like about Burns' game, his submission ability, his grappling ability is top notch. Third degree black belt. Eight of his 11 wins are by submission. And his last seven wins in a row were by submission. And usually early rounds, like round one, round two. If you're looking for a prop to take a stab at here, I'm going submission win for Burns in round one or round two. Play them both because that's where he's usually path to victory is. As for Bill Algio, good submission defense. Is he good enough for a third degree black belt? We're going to find out this weekend. And as for the concerns for Herbert Burns, they're pretty obvious. He's a very one-dimensional fighter. Look at the striking stats. Negative striking ratio. His entire game is predicated around submissions, grappling. So if he cannot get that going, he's kind of screwed. And of course, he hasn't fought a fight in almost two years. His last fight was in August of 2020. We're in July of 2022. That's not a good thing, especially in the middle part of your career. Now, why did that happen? I don't know. If you know, put it down in the comments below. But two years is a long time off. Of course, his brother Gilbert Burns is much more active in the UFC. I think he comes in here looking pretty good, though, guys. I got this feeling, like at the bottom of my stomach, that he comes in here with even better BJJ skills and probably gets a first round, second round submission win over Bill Algio. Now, the fights we watched right down this film, we watched Burns versus Pineda from 2020. Burns vs. Dunham from 2020, Aljo vs. Carlisle from 2020, Aljo vs. Ramos from 2021, and Aljo vs. Brito for this year. If you want to watch any one of those five fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube. You'll see those five links available in our description. My final few thoughts on these two fighters. Experience-wise, very similar. Fighter IQ, also very similar. Both guys are pretty balanced. They can fight in the feet. They can fight in the ground. As for finishing ability, I give a significant edge to Herbert Burns. We talked about this already. He's the much better finisher. When it comes to striking, I give the edge to Bill Algis. On the feet, he should look smoother, better combinations, higher volume, more output. His goal should be to keep two of the three rounds of this fight on the feet. As for grappling, Aljo's got a wrestling base, but when it comes to BJJ, Herbert Burns is much more superior than Bill Aljo and will pose a threat the entire fight. The props I like for this fight, the fight does not go to decision is minus 130. I love that spot. I think Herbert Burns either submits Aljo or maybe Herbert Burns comes in here with a lot of ring rust. Aljo looks very good and maybe hurts him. Burns to win by any kind of submission at any point in the fight is plus 235. Not great. The props are not out yet for round one or round two subs for Herbert Burns, but when they do come out, I'll be playing both of those. I like Herbert Burns surprising people at plus 145. Let me know what you guys think. Do you like Bill Algio? I hate going against the guy from Pennsylvania. After all, MMA Fight Club is based on a Pennsylvania, but I gotta go against the green. I think Herbert Burns comes in here with some nasty BJJ skills, makes it ugly for Bill Algio, and somehow pulls off a submission. That's your breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. All right, moving up the card, next fight's going to be a bantamweight bout at 135 pounds between the American fighter Ricky Simone and Jack Shore, who hails from Wales. Jack Shore is undefeated at 16-0. He goes by Tank, a favorite here at minus 170 in the money line. 
27 years old, 5'8 hybrid, 71 inch reach, and he trains out of Shore Mixed Martial Arts, which is his father's gym. As for Simone, 19 and 3 overall, 4 1 his last five fights, a dog here plus 150. He's out of Vancouver, Washington, 29 years old in 10 months, so about to be 30, 5'6 in hybrid, 70 inch reach, and he trains out of American top team in Portland. So, height and reach wise, a small advantage there for Jack Shore. Age wise, they're about the same. Ricky Simone's only about three years older. Now, looking at the numbers on tapology, by no surprise, Jack Shore is the favorite, getting 72% of the votes, only 28% of the votes coming in for Ricky Simone. This is a tough fight to figure out. Both are very good fighters. I am ever so slightly actually going to choose the side of Ricky Simone in this fight. I know it's not the popular pick considering that I'm in America and I should go with the American fighter. Jack Shore, very good fighter, amazing striker. We'll definitely have the striking advantage, but long story short, when it comes to in the clinch, the wrestling exchanges, the power that Ricky Simone has, I think that's where he wins the fight. Now look at the striking numbers in these two fighters. Ricky Simone's landing 3.04 per minute, absorbing 3.00. A positive ratio, but barely positive, more or less equal output versus what he's receiving. As for Jack Shore, landing 4.18 per minute, a little busier and absorbing 2.27. So those numbers tell you right there, slightly busier fighter and a more positive striking ratio. As for grappling, 6.76 takedowns per fight for Ricky Simone, almost seven takedowns per fight, very active wrestler. And as for Jack Shore, averaging 4.13 takedowns per 15 minutes for takedown defense, 72% for Ricky Simone and 84% for Jack Shore. Now I believe Jack Shore had never been taken down in the UFC until his last fight where he got taken down one time. So 84% doesn't really tell you the full scope of how good at takedown defense he is. With that said, I do think Ricky Simone is able to get him down at some point in this fight. Let's talk about the background of these two fighters. Ricky Simone was born in Oregon to a Mexican family. He has three brothers. He's the former LFA Bantamweight champion. He grew up with Vince Morales. That's his cousin, who's also in the UFC. He wrestled in high school. He didn't win a state championship, but he did make it to the state finals. He briefly wrestled in college as well. He went 7-0 as an amateur. He went pro 2014. He's a black belt in BJJ. He signed to the UFC 2018. He's got a 7-2 record in the UFC, and he's currently on a four-fight winning streak. He's the number 11 ranked Bantamweight fighter currently in the UFC. His last fight was against Rafael Asuncao, 2021. Last year, he won the fight by a TKO in round two. He was a minus 300 favorite, so not a surprise that he won. Displayed very good punching power, got a nice TKO win. It should be noted, though, Asunzo has lost his last two fights by KO, so maybe that guy's starting to get chinny. Nonetheless, a nice knockout there for Ricky Simone. His prior fight, Brian Kelleher, another veteran. He won that fight by decision last year as a minus 245 favorite. He dominated Keller in that fight. He cut him early in round one. He took him down a bunch of times. He just grounded and pounded him on the feet, had more power. Brian Kelleher was the smaller fighter, had no chance in that fight, but you see what Ricky Simone could do when he dictates the fight and he's using his power and his strength. Now, the only two losses he has in his career in the UFC are against Uriah Faber and Rob Font. Very quality fighters. In the case of the Uriah Faber fight, it was a round one flash knockout. He was a minus 370 favorite in that spot. Terrible. Against Rob Font, he was a plus 120 pick him. He lost that fight by decision in 2019. So even his losses in the UFC, very quality losses against very good opponents. Now, the things I like about Ricky Simone, number one, solid wrestling averaging 6.7 takedowns per fight, as we talked about before. And he's usually the stronger fighter in the clinch. I think Jack Short is a tremendous talent. 16-0, if he wins this fight, I'm not surprised. But in the clinch, it just seems as though when you look at their body types and how they operate, Simone's a slightly shorter fighter, a little more power, a little more stockier. That's where I believe he has the advantage in this fight. When the fight gets to the clinch, I think he's going to have the advantage over Short. And lastly, tremendous cardio. His pace and pressure is relentless. He can go that way all three rounds. He's known for having good cardio. Now, my only two concerns for Ricky Simone, his stand-up game, it's a work in progress. It's getting better. He does have some power, but still there's some things there about his technique that could be improved, and he's very hittable at times. Obviously, landing just about as many punches as he's receiving. He has a kicking attack as well, but doesn't use it very much. I wish he would be a little more active with his kicks. And it really comes back to how he fights, right? He fights like a wrestler, a grappler. That's really where he butters his bread. But on the feet, it's still a work in progress. Now, as for Jack Shore, he began kickboxing at the age of six years old, which 
which you can tell the guy is an amazing striker, has a tremendous kicking game. After four years of kickboxing, he convinced his dad to open up a gym, which they did in 2007. And that's obviously where he's still training. His father has been his head coach since he was a little kid, and he's still coaching him. He's a black belt BJJ. He was 12-0 as an amateur with five submissions, and now he's undefeated as a pro. The guy has not lost in 27 total mixed martial arts fights. He went professional in 2016. He fought in Cage Warriors, part of the UFC. He's the former CWFC Bantamweight champion. He signed to the UFC in 2019, three years ago, and he's currently 5-0 in the UFC. Now, his recent opponents, he fought Timur Valiev earlier this year. He won that fight by decision, and it was a dominating performance. He knocked down Timur Valiev several times in that fight. It could have even been stopped at some point. His prior fight, Ludovic Shalian, 2021 decision win. He was a minus 600 favorite in that fight. Not much of a contest, gets an easy win. Now, prior fight before that, Hunter Azur, 2021, last year, he won by split decision. Now, a weird split decision, mind you. He came in as a minus 185 favorite. Two judges had a 30-27 for sure. And then one judge had a 29-28 for Azure. Figure that one out. He gets out of there with a decision win. Now, what's to like about Jack Shore's game? His takedown defense is amazing. He's only been taken down one time in the UFC, and that was in his last fight. He'll need that in this matchup against Ricky Simone. He's also very durable. He's never been finished in his pro fights or amateur fights. His takedown offense and grappling are a little bit underrated at times as well. He knows his way around the ground. Looking at the last fight, for example, Timur Valiev gets a takedown in round one. And right after the takedown happens, he immediately gets a transition going, gets the fight back to the feet. So even if he gets taken down, he showed the skills to get back to his feet quickly. And that's against a Dagestani type of wrestler in Timur Valiev. As we mentioned before, never lost as a pro or amateur. That's 27 total mixed martial arts fights. He's a balanced fighter, good grappling skills, and also very good in the feet. Throws a very nice lead jab that he follows up with a right hand. And he has a tremendous kicking game to kicks to the bottom. He kicks to the leg, kicks to the head. He's also a very good finisher. Five of his last eight wins have been by finish, and he's a very active fighter. This will be his second fight this year, and he fought twice last year. Now, my concerns for Jack Shore. He has faced kind of limited competition. Now, Timur Valley will be the toughest opponent he's had to date, a guy who was undefeated in the UFC, a guy who was like 18-2 and two overall record. That was a good opponent, and he dominated him. But other than that, it's been perfect matchups for him. So we haven't really seen him be tested, and we haven't seen him face the guy who's going to really force him to wrestle. And secondly, limited finishing ability lately. Now, he's had five finishes in his last eight wins, right? But his last three wins were all via decision. His last finish was two years ago via rear naked choke over Aaron Phillips. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Simone versus Sunsao last year, Simone versus Kelleher from last year, Simone versus Pirello from 2020, Shore versus Azor from last year, Shore versus Sholian from last year, and Shore versus Valiev earlier this year. If you want to watch any one of those six fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube in the description. You're going to see those six links available. All right, my final few thoughts on these two fighters. Experience-wise, about the same. You got 16 total fights compared to 22 total fights. They fought comparable competition. You can maybe argue that Ricky Simone has fought a few tougher fighters, but overall, you got a guy with Jack Shore who has tons of martial arts experience a long amateur record so when you add that up along with his professional record I think these guys are about the same in terms of fighter experience as for fighter iq give them both about the same rating they're both smart fighters they come out of good gyms even though that's short mixed martial arts is his father's gym they have other good fighters coming out of the gym and then of course you've got ricky simona att in portland so good coaching smart fighters very well rounded as for cardio, again, both guys check out here. Ricky Simone runs a high pace the entire fight, and Jack Shore's like, listen, hold my beer, dude. I could be right there with you. Both guys have finishing ability. Both guys have finishes in the UFC, but not over the last few fights. I have a strong tendency to believe this fight probably goes a distance. As for striking, I give the edge to Jack Shore, as we talked about. A little more fluent with the kicking game. He's more of a natural striker. Been kickboxing since he was like four years old. Where you got Ricky Simone, who's more of a wrestling base. When it comes to grappling, now here's where it gets interesting. I think technique-wise, about the same. But the power advantage should be there for Ricky Simone. I have a feeling that when they get into these clinch situations, he's going to be more successful, be able to pick up Jack Shore and get some dominant position. And for Jack Shore, needs to show the technique, get back to the feet, 
get his own takedowns. But when it comes to grappling, I got to give a small edge there to Ricky Simone. Now, the props I like for this fight, as I mentioned before, the fight with the distance at minus 180. Over two and a half is minus 215. That covers you for an extra half a round. To win by decision for Ricky Simone is plus 260. To win by decision for Jack Shore is plus 185. Those are two props to consider. The round three finishing prop for Jack Shore is plus 1,200. You know, put 10 bucks on it to win 120. The round three prop for Ricky Simone to win in round three is plus 2,500. Again, put 10 bucks on that. Put 20 bucks total. You're going to be covered both sides if there's a finish in round three. In summary, guys, I'm going to choose Ricky Simone to win the fight as a dog. This fight is priced correctly. It's a pick 'em. They're both evenly matched. Jack Shore is undefeated. That's probably why he's the slight favorite. But Ricky Simone is a handful. He's also on a streak himself. I don't have the kind of confidence to play either guy on the main line straight up, but I'll probably take a stab at the props of the fight with the distance or the over two and a half along with those round three finishes. That's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. Moving up the prelim card, we have the main event for the prelim card. It's going to be a middleweight bout at 185 pounds between the Hawaiian fighter Puna Hale Soriano, who goes by Puna, and Dalcha Lingambula, who's from Africa. He actually hails specifically from the Democratic Republic of Congo. He goes by the champion. He's 11 and 4 overall, 2 and 3 in his last five fights. A dog here, though, at plus 200 in the money line. He's 34 years old, 11 months, so about to be 35. 5 foot 8 in height, with 76 inch reach, and he trains out of camp fight and also team champion. As for Puna Hale, he's 8 and 2 overall, 3 and 2 in his last five fights. A favorite here at minus 260. He's based out of Hawaii, 29 years old 5 foot 11 height so three inches taller than dalcha with a 72 and a half inch reach so about a four inch reach advantage for dalcha but yet he's a shorter fighter always interesting when you see that and for punahala he trains out of extreme couture in las vegas now look at the numbers on tapology it appears that soriano is the big favorite getting about 90 percent of the votes on tapology i totally agree i think dalcha's best days are behind him He's about to be 35, but the way he functions is like a very old 35-year-old fighter. Now, looking at their striking stats for Punahale, landing 4.03 per minute, absorbing 3.56. Good volume, but not the best striking ratio. He's pretty much getting hit the same amount of times as he's hitting somebody else. As for Dalcha, landing 3.3 per minute, a little less volume, but absorbing 3.72. So neither guy is a very efficient striker. As for takedown offense, 2.19 takedowns per 15 minutes for Dalcha and 1.13 for Soriano. A little surprising in that Soriano is a former state champion in Hawaii. You'd think he would wrestle a bit more. As for wrestling defense, 35% takedown defense for Soriano and 75% takedown defense for Dalcha. As for the background of these two fighters, so Punahale was born in Hawaii. He won state championships at 170 pounds in high school. He's also a judo state champion. He wrestled in college at Division Three Warp college in iowa there's people who played division three basketball for example that are playing in the nba there's people who play division three football who are playing football in the nfl there's ways that people fall through the cracks so when we say division three i don't mean it to say like oh he's not a very good wrestler you could wrestle division one naia junior college division one division two II, division three if you're solid you're solid he was an all-american in college now, his introduction to mixed martial arts actually came from Dan Ige. It's a friend of his, and if you don't know, Dan Ige is also Hawaiian. That's the person who told him, listen, you got a good wrestling background, dude? Try mixed martial arts, and from there he took off. He has a 4-0 amateur record. He's been a pro for about five years. He made his pro debut in 2017. He has a 3-0 combined record between PFL, Titan FC, and LFA. He fought in Dana White Contender Series in 2019, where he won via decision over Jamie Pickett. He currently has a record of 2-2 in the UFC with two knockout finishes and one decision loss. Let's talk about his last few fights. He fought Nick Maximo earlier this year in February, lost the fight by split decision. Very close. Could have gone either way. Not an awful loss. Nick Maximoff is a pretty good fighter, but he did come into that fight as the favorite at minus 195. His prior fight, he fought Dusko Todorovic last year. Round one KO win. Todorovic came to that fight 10-0. Very impressive win against a guy who was undefeated. He also fought Jamie Pickett. Won that fight by decision 2019 on Dana White Contender Series. And of course, Jamie Pickett is currently in the UFC. Now, what's to like about Punahale's game? The way he fights. Number one, a pretty good finisher. Six of his eight wins in the UFC have been by finish. Two by sub and four by KO. 
He's also a very active fighter. He does about one to two grappling bouts per year. And this will be a second mixed martial arts fight this year. He's durable. He's never been finished between his amateur career and pro career. Now the concerns for Punahale, the number one concern that everyone has, it's the cardio. When he comes out in round one, he's ferocious, like a pit bull, high energy, big looping strikes. After that doesn't work after a while, he doesn't land those strikes, doesn't get a takedown, gets a little bit tired. He's a shell of himself. Now, he's got a good chin, a lot of heart. He'll fight through those moments of low cardio. But at this point in his career, it's still a big question. You don't like backing guys who have poor cardio. He also hasn't really been tested. Now, he's been tested from a cardio standpoint, but he hasn't been hurt. He hasn't been, like, cut. He hasn't had to face true adversity in the octagon. So we don't know what he's going to respond like if he gets clipped or if he gets hurt. It's still a question mark. And the way he fights also contributes to depleting his energy. The high volume strikes, the big overhand right. He reminds me a little bit of Mike Tyson. In Mike Tyson's heyday, people were like, he should use a jab, develop the jab. And it just never happened. He was never a jabber. He was just a big overhand right, hook type of guy, body shot guy. Punahale fights like that. Unfortunately, if it doesn't land, he depletes his own energy. As for Dalcha Lingambula, he was born in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Africa. He began training judo in grade school and eventually became a national team member. He's a former EFC light heavyweight champion. He signed with the UFC in 2019. He's got a two and three record in the UFC. His last fight was against Cody Brundage, who you might remember just fought like a week ago, had a nice win. Against Cody Brundage, he lost round one via submission as a minus 145 favorite. Against Mark andre Barriut last year, he was a plus 145 underdog, and he lost that fight by decision. In a prior fight, Marcus Perez, 2021 decision win, he was a minus 150 favorite. So last few fights have gone a decision or he's lost. Now the positive things about Dacha, he's got a very strong judo background. It's good for getting judo throws, getting top control. If he can get on top of Soriano, when Soriano's tired, that could be a path to chewing up the clock, eating up some time, and getting some points in the scorecards. Also, he's a very powerful fighter. When I mean powerful, look at the way he's built. The guy is jacked. In the clinch, against the fence, he could be effective when he has the energy. As we get into round two or three, it's going to be a battle of who has the worst cardio. I think the younger fighter probably edges him there. Now, my concern for Dolce, the number one concern is the age. He's 34, about to be 35 in about two weeks. It's like he's an old 35. Some guys fight at 35. They're still spry, young. Not him. He is slowing down. Unless my eyes are lying to me, I'm watching the guy deteriorate. He's slowing down. Now, should he be out of the UFC? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is he's losing a step. The guy's slowing down a bit. And I think it gets a guy like Soriano. That's a bad mix. That's a recipe for disaster. That's a recipe to get knocked down and finished, if you catch my drift. He also has very limited finishing ability. So for a guy who has that power, that strength, he's all jacked. He has one finish in the last five years. If he can't finish Soriano, like knock him out, then his path to victory would be through a decision, like a long fight where he's older and gets tired. Yeah, a lot of question marks there for me if you're picking Lingula to win the fight. I think this fight is a handmade fight for Soriano. He should win going away. Now, the fights we watched right on this film, we watched Lingambula versus Perez from last year, Lingambula versus Bayou from last year, and Lingambula versus Brunage from earlier this year. We also watched Soriano versus Todorovic from last year, Soriano versus Allen, 2021, and then Soriano versus Maximo, which is earlier this year, where he lost that fight by split decision. If you want to watch any one of those six fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube, and you'll see those six links available. My final few thoughts on these fighters, when you compare them side by side, like experience, IQ, cardio, finishing ability, striking ability, grappling ability, and heart, they actually are very similar. It was surprising to me. Even though you've got Punahale at a minus 260-ish, minus 250, almost a two and a half to one favorite, they are similar. Neither one has very good cardio. Both have like awkward striking, powerful, but not technically savvy. Grappling, they're both okay at grappling, but not amazing at grappling, and their cardio becomes a factor so they can't grapple at some point. There's a lot of similarities here. Even experience-wise, 10 total fights for Soriano, only 15 total fights for Dolce. And Dolce, yeah, he's older, six years old, 35, got a late start in his career, did judo for a while, 
So when you look at just the numbers, not the age number, just the actual numbers, they are very close on paper. But the reality is Father Time is undefeated. I've watched Dolce get slowed in the last few fights. At 34 by 235, I think those four or five years between him and Soriano are a big difference. Now the props I like for the fight, the fight not with the distance at minus 189. A bit chalky, but definitely a parlay piece. Matter of fact, think about this. If you bet Soriano straight up at minus 250, minus 260, the value is eh, kind of chewed up. But at minus 189, not even minus 200 yet, you're getting more value there. And most likely, if you like Soriano to win the fight, it's going to be by some kind of a KO, TKO. By decision, ugh, that's when it's like it's sweaty. A late fight with Soriano getting tired, I don't want a part of that. Now, Soriano to win by TKO, that's plus 160. The books clearly think he's going to win the fight by a TKO. A round two TKO win by Soriano is plus 750. So why the dramatic increase? You know why? As the fight goes on, a round two or round three TKO by Soriano is so unlikely because of the freaking gas tank. Now, round one KO when he's fresh, full of energy, full of piss and vinegar. Yeah. And so, for example, a round one KO by Soriano is only plus 350. The fight going under two and a half rounds is minus 180, a spot I'll consider. Either way, I don't have the greatest of faith in Punahale at minus 250-ish range, minus 260. I'm going to pick him to win the fight, but I can't bet him straight up. There's just too much inherent risk with a guy with low cardo. I'm going to bet some of those props, and I'm going to pick Punahale to win the fight. That's your breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. Lauren Murphy versus Misha Tate. Both American fighters. Lauren Murphy goes by Lucky. She's 15 and 5 overall. 4 1 in her last five fights. A dog here plus 150 ish out of Houston, Texas. 38 years old, 11 months. So about to be 39. 5 5 and high with a 68 inch reach. And she trains out of MMA Lab. As for Misha Tate, who goes by Cupcake, 19 and 8 overall. 2 and 3 in her last five fights. She's a minus 170 ish to minus 200 favorite. She's out of Olympia, Washington. 35 years old in 10 months. Both of them are past their athletic prime, I would say. For Tate, she's five foot six, about an inch taller than Murphy, and 66 and a half inch reach, about a one and a half inch reach advantage for Murphy. Now, looking at the public votes on Tapology, Tate's getting 68% of the votes, only 32% coming in for Murphy. I'm not surprised at all. Tate is the pick for us as well. She's got the better pedigree, a little bit younger. Now, looking at the striking stats in these two fighters, Murphy's landing 3.58 per minute, absorbing 4.35. As for Misha Tate, landing 2.41 per minute, absorbing 2.87. Less volume and also a negative striking ratio. As for takedown offense, one takedown per 50 minutes for Lauren Murphy, 1.99 for Misha Tate. When it comes to takedown wrestling offense, a little more activity for Misha Tate. As for takedown defense, 65% for Lauren Murphy and 53% for Misha Tate. And that will be a factor in the fight. I think at some point, Misha Tate does get a takedown or two. I think Murphy tries some takedowns and Misha Tate will defend them. I think the fight mostly is on the feet, but for some period of time, the fight will be on the ground as well. All right, let's talk about the background of these two fighters. For Laura Murphy, she was born and raised in Alaska. Her father died in a plane crash when she was 11 years old, which kind of contributed to her very tough teenage years. She got involved with drugs and alcohol, which she attributes to her depression of losing her father, and she was very close to her father. So how does mixed martial arts become part of her life? Well, she brings her son to a BJJ class in 2009, about 13 years ago. She decides to sign up for the adult class, and three months later, she's fighting her first pro fight. She's a brown belt BJJ. She was on season 26 of Ultimate Fighter. She's the former Invicta Bantamweight champion, and she's currently the number three ranked flyweight fighter in the UFC. Now, her prior opponent, she's coming off of a loss against Valentina Shevchenko, where she was a plus 850 underdog. She lost the fight in round four via KO. It's like a half glass full, half glass empty situation. She goes almost four rounds with Valentina Shevchenko. At the same time, 
she loses. <laughs> and against that kind of opponent, you expect that. Her prior fight against Joanne Wood, she won by decision. That was last year as a plus 100 underdog. Her prior fight, Lilia Shakarova, she won that fight by submission in round two. That was two years ago, 2020. She was a minus 200-ish favorite. But keep in mind, Sharikova has not won a fight in the UFC. So looking back at her most recent opponents, you see a loss against a champion and then two wins against, uh, you know, okay. I feel like the last five fights for her have been very convenient. She's been on the right side of some close decisions. So I'm not really sold in this 4-1 recent record of Murphy as being a hot streak or that she's a better fighter in any way she performed than Misha Tate. Now, what's to like about Lauren Murphy? Number one, she's a crafty veteran. She can make things ugly. Kind of like Jessica Penny. We talked about her earlier in the card. And she's also pretty durable. She has been finished before, but she can take a punch. She's a tough lady. If you've ever seen her interview, if you watch her on The Ultimate Fighter, she has a long background of dealing with like ups and downs in her life. She's a very durable, just tough overall person. She won't give up easily. And her grappling can't be overlooked. She's got some submissions in her background. If Tate makes a mistake at the ground, I can see Lauren Murphy swoop up a submission. Now, my concern is for Lauren Murphy. She's never been a very fast fighter. Like, she's never was a very quick, athletic person. And by her own admission in interviews, she does not consider herself very athletic. It kind of shows when she fights. Her striking is slow. When she gets hit in the face, it's very slow reactions. Hands are low. She's very easy to hit. Also, she cuts very easily. A lot of scar tissue on her face. She tends to bleed, even in fights when she wins. I can imagine some scenarios where I can see Tate cutting her. Now, Tate's a bleeder too. She had a nose job and whatever else. We talk about that when we get to her profile. But when it comes to Murphy, a lot of scar tissue, she wears her damage. And she's about to be 38 years old. She's never been quick. She's not getting any faster. When it comes to any activity on the feet, she'll be much slower than Misha Tate. Okay, let's talk about Misha Tate. She was born in Tacoma, Washington. She wrestled all four years of high school with the boys. Now, her senior year, she decided to dip and dabble, wrestle with the girls, and she won a state title for the girls' division. Those four years of wrestling with the boys definitely kind of helped her. She goes off to college as a student, but not an athlete. One of her friends tells her about some local gym. She goes, and from there, that's the introduction to mixed martial arts. She went 2-1 as an amateur. She lost her pro debut in 2007 versus Caitlin Young. Kind of interesting now. Caitlin Young is in the PFL. She's the former Strike Force and UFC Bantamweight champion. Now, during her brief retirement, about five years, she served as the vice president of one championships. She's currently the number 10 UFC Bantamweight. She has two kids with Johnny Nunez, who's also a mixed martial arts fighter. And if you don't know, she won Celebrity Big Brother last year, which paid her like a million dollars. Now, her recent opponents, she fought Caitlin Vieira last year, lost the fight by decision. She was a minus 110 pickup in that fight. I thought she won. I will say this, though. She didn't dominate any part of the fight. It was very close. It could have gone either way. Her prior fight, the first fight after retirement, Marianne Renault. She wins by a round three TKO. A nice looking win on paper. A minus 180 favorite. Gets a job done. Her first fight back from retirement. But that was Renault's retirement fight. Good win on paper for Misha Tate, but it was kind of a gimme. Now, going back six years Years ago, her last fight in the UFC before she retired against Raquel Pennington. She was a minus 135 favorite. She lost the fight afterwards. She retires for five years. She was worn out. She talked about being in a toxic relationship and just needing a change of things. She's one and one since she came back. I think Lauren Murphy, in my humble opinion, is not in the same level as Misha Tate. Even Misha Tate, not her best. Even Misha Tate being hurt. Even Misha Tate older, which she's not here. She's actually younger. She should beat Lauren Murphy every which shape or form. Now, what's to like about the way Misha Tate fights? Number one, she has championship level experience. She has multiple belts in different promotions. She has a winning attitude. Man, she won on Big Brother. She's won in the Octagon. She won state championship in high school for wrestling. She's a tough, very gritty person. She's a very balanced fighter. On the feet, okay. On the ground, she'll have a technical advantage over Lauren Murphy. And I believe the fight gets to the ground at some point. On the feet, she should have a speed advantage over Lauren Murphy. My concerns are my critiques of Misha Tate. Not a great finisher. Six of her last nine fights have gone to decision, and she had one finish in the last six years. Age is a factor for both fighters. Even though Lauren Murphy's older, neither fighter is 
25. They're both like mid to late 30s. It's not good for either fighter. And my biggest concern for Misha Tate is, why are you fighting? You're a fighter who was adored. You had a championship. You were part of the first generation of women in UFC. Why are you back in the octagon? You got a nose job. If you follow her Instagram, she cares about her looks. She has two kids. She's a mother. Why are you fighting? What's the goal? Do you plan to actually fight for another belt? The loss against Vieira was a sign that, listen, you're never going to challenge for the belt again. That's it. That time's passed. So I have to ask myself the question, why are you still fighting? You know, what's the reason? What's the goal? Just to prove that you can go out there and fight? Just to prove that you're still an athlete? It's not a good sport just to prove to people you're still an athlete. You're hit in the head. You're getting older. You're a mother. You know, you're coming back home after a fight all cut up and bruised up. I'm not surprised if she loses a fight like this, that she puts her glove back down again and says, I'm done. Now, I like me to take them in the fight, but I'm very concerned about the why. Why are you still fighting? The fights we watched in this film, we watched Murphy versus Wood from last year, Murphy versus Shevchenko from last year, Tate versus Pennington from 2016, six years ago, Tate versus Renault from last year, and Tate versus Vieira. If you want to watch any one of those five fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube, you'll see those five links available. My final thoughts, guys. I like Lauren Murphy's story from Alaska. Her dad died when she was young, went through some alcohol and substance abuse problems. She cares about her family, cares about her career. Tough, very gritty overall person. You want to root for her. On the flip side, Misha Tate's more talented, younger, former champion in multiple different promotions. On their best days, who wins the fight? Tate, like nine times out of 10. Can Laura Murphy make this ugly? Get some top control? Cut Misha Tate? Yeah, all those things could happen. But over the course of 15 minutes, Misha Tate will win the fight. I like her a lot in the spot. At minus 170-ish to minus 180, I love her. I'm going to parlay her. I'm going to play her straight up. And if she loses, I will die on this sword. I will die on this mountain. I'm a Misha Tate fan. I also like Laura Murphy, but I got Misha Tate winning this fight. That's your breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. Moving up the main card, we have a featherweight bout at 145 pounds between the American fighter Shane Hurricane Burgos and Charles Air Jourdain from Quebec, Canada. Jourdain is 13-4-1 overall, 3-1-1 in his last five fights. A dog here, though, at plus 160, plus 150 in the main line. A little surprised by that. This, to me, is a legit pick'em fight, but I would have think that Charles Air Jourdain, with the recent hype, the way he fights, would have been favored. But anyway, nonetheless, he's a slight dog here. He's 26 years old, 5'9 in height with a 69-inch reach, and he trains out of Academy Pro Star MMA. As for Shane Burgos, he's 14-3 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. Favorite here at minus 190 to minus 200. As we mentioned before, he hails from New York, 31 years old, 5'11 in height with a 75.5 inch reach, and he trains out of Tiger Shulman's mixed martial arts. So height and reach wise, a bit of an advantage there for Shane Burgos. Now look at the public votes on Tapology. Burgos is the big favorite, getting 72% of the votes. A little surprised again. I would have thought Charles Jourdain, he fights a lot. People kind of know him. He's flashy, bit of a warrior. will go out in his shield, tends to wear damage on his face, tends to go a little nuts at times in the octagon. Someone that people recognize. So I would have expected the votes to be a little closer. Nonetheless, I'm on Jourdain to win the fight. I like him. I like him as a potential dog. I acknowledge Shane Burgos is probably the better striker, a little more disciplined, better technique, comes from a good gym, all that stuff. I just think it's a good dog spot. I'm going to try to convince you of that throughout this breakdown. Now, looking at the striking stats in these two fighters, Burgos is landing 7.95 per minute, very high volume, absorbing 6.69 you don't like that again high volume almost eight strikes per minute but absorbing almost seven so he needs to sure up his stand-up defense as for charles rudain landing 5.6 per minute not as much volume but good volume and also absorbing quite a bit at 4.53 
Both guys have good output, a little more for Shane Burgers, but their stand-up defense, they're getting hit a bit too much. Neither guy's much of a grappler or wrestler, only .24 takedowns for 15 minutes for Burgos and zero takedowns for 15 minutes for Charles Jordan. As for takedown defense, 91% for Burgos and 46% for Charles Jordan. I imagine most of this fight's on the feet. Maybe someone gets knocked down, so someone jumps on top of the other guy, but most, if not the entire fight, should be on the feet. Shane Burgos comes into this fight off of a win last November against Billy Quarantino by decision. A solid win. Good opponent. Billy Quarantino is a respectable fighter. He came into that fight as a minus 180 favorite, so he got the job done by decision. His prior fight lost to Edson Barbosa. Round three hook. A very weird knockout. If you want to see something that's really sketchy, he gets hit and then has like a delayed reaction and eventually falls back to the ground. A very weird situation. His prior fight, Josh Emmett, lost that fight by decision. So two of his last three fights he's lost, but good fighters. Prior to that, he beat Makwan Americani, round three TKO. He also won by split decision over Cub Swanson. So he's got some good names in his resume. He's fought some pretty good guys. Also lost good guys. He also has a loss against Calvin Qatar, round three TKO. If you're going to point to a concern with Shane Burgos, it's the chin. It's not that he doesn't have a good chin. It's that we're not sure if he's chinny. Against Charles Jourdain, who's a very violent striker, who can TKO just about anyone, who has okay power in the hands, but a lot of power in his legs, it could be a problem at some point. I think the path of victory for Charles Jourdain needs to involve him either knocking down Shane Burgos at some point in this fight, maybe TKOing him, or at the very least, having those highlight moments in the fight where he shows the judges that I'm the one landing the better punches. Burgos went 5-0-1 as an amateur. He went pro in 2013. He signed to the UFC in 2016. He fought in CFFC and XFE before the UFC. His most notable wins are against guys like Cub Swanson, Charles Rosa, Makwan Americani, and Billy Quarantino. I'm not really sure where to put Shane Burgos on my scale. He's above average, yes, but there's like something still there that I'm not sure about. I don't know why I'm not sure of the guy. Heck, I'm from New York. I should be backing him more in this fight. But something just tells me that the craziness of Charles Jourdain, that X factor, is going to make it a little tough for him. He'll land a few of those shots in the fight, which will sway the judges. Now, as for Charles Jourdain, who hails from Montreal, Quebec, he has a younger brother, Louis Jourdain, who's also a mixed martial arts fighter. He went 8-2 as an amateur. He went pro 2016. He's the former TKO major featherweight champion. He lost his UFC debut in 2019 versus Des Green by decision. He's earned fight of the night one time in the UFC. His most recent opponents, he fought Andre Ewell last year, won that fight by decision. He was a minus 220 favorite. His prior fight, lost by submission against Julian Rosa as a minus 190 favorite. On one side, you're like, damn it, you know, you should be winning those fights. On the flip side, Julian Rosa is a veteran, has good submission ability, good guillotine choke, and he fell into it in that fight. He fought Andre Feely, 2020, split decision loss. He was a plus 185 underdog in that matchup. And one more fact to mention, Choi, 2019, round two TKO win. He came in as a big underdog at plus 300. He's had an interesting run so far. He's had some ups, had some downs, but even in his low moments, he's shown a lot of spunk. Great striking. The guy's got a lot of heart. He's a warrior. Like, for example, against Andre Ewell, he turned into an animal at the end of the fight. He was yelling at Ewell, almost finished him at the end of the fight. If they had another maybe 15, 20 seconds, he would have finished Ewell. He's got an excellent finish rate, a 92% finish rate to be exact 11 of his 12 wins have been by finish he's also very durable he's only been finished one time that was by submission never been tko'd and as we mentioned before he will not shy away from mixing it up i like that about him granted it can be dangerous at times but i like a guy who's going to sit there and trade not back away not run and he's also a very active fighter this will be his first fight this year but he fought three times last year twice in 2020 and three times in 2019 now, my concern is for Jordan. His submission defense is a bit suspect. He did have a pro loss by submission against Julian Rosa, and one of his two amateur losses was also by submission. It shouldn't be a factor in this fight because Shane Burgos is not much of a submission guy, and just the way we like that he stands in the phone booth and will fight, it can also be to his detriment. He's got to know when to sort of disengage, get it out of distance, 
That concerns me because, again, a good striker like Shane Burgos can piece him apart, and Shane Burgos should have the technical boxing advantage. The fights we watched in this film, we watched Burgos versus Barbosa from last year, Burgos versus Quarantino from last year, Jordan versus Rosa from last year, Jordan versus Ewell from last year, and Jordan versus Venata from earlier this year. If you don't watch any one of those five fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube. In our description, you'll see those five links available. If you're going to bet on the fight, I would bet with a lot of caution. I can understand fully why people like Shane Burgos. I acknowledge his benefits. I acknowledge the fact that he's a better striker. He's young, good gym, 14-3, and three, a lot of good things to like about Shane Burgos, and he might very well win the fight. But if you're looking for a live dog on this card, a guy who's possibly able to come in there, upset things, can maybe test the chin of Shane Burgos, I think he's got a shot here. So to me, this is more of a dog or pass pick. I'm not very confident on Charles Jordan. That's your breakdown, guys. At plus 160, there's some good value there on Charles Jordan. If you don't agree with me, let me know in the comments section. If you like Shane Burgos, let me know why. And if you want to pass in this fight altogether, I get it. All right, guys, we want to the next fight. Here we go. Moving up the main card, next fight's going to be a flyweight battle at 125 pounds between Matt Schnell, who hails from Shreveport, Louisiana, and Sumadarji, just one name, like Madonna or Prince, just Sumadarji. He goes by the Tibetan Eagle. He hails from China, 16-4 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. A favorite here at minus 250 range, 26 years old, 5'8", high with a 72-inch reach, and he trains out of Embo Fight Club. As for Matt Danger Schnell, 15-7 and seven overall, 2-3 and three in his last five fights, a dog here at plus 200, 32 years old, 5'8", high with a 70-inch reach, and he trains out of American Top Team. Both guys are out of very good gyms, same height at 5'8", and about a 2-inch reach advantage for Sumadarji. The numbers coming in on Tapology suggest that Sumadarji is the rightful favorite. 81% of the votes coming in for Sumadarji, only 19% for Schnell. This will be a very basic breakdown, guys. I didn't do a deep dive because I have a little bit of pre-knowledge about both fighters, and I'm very high on Sumadarji. I agree with the line. I think he chin-checks Schnell, and if he doesn't chin check him i think he walks away easily with a decision i have him as one of my most confident picks in the card on the money line straight up now looking at striking stats in these two guys chanel's landing 4.26 per minute absorbing 4.23 decent volume but not a great ratio as for sumadarji landing 4.49 per minute almost the same volume but absorbing 2.19 better stand-up defense as for takedown offense neither guy is much of a grappler or wrestler only averaging about 0.4 takedowns per 15 minutes for both fighters for takedown defense 77 percent for sumadarji and 50 percent for matt chanel now, Subitarji last fought almost a year and a half ago. It's kind of been a big layoff for him. He fought in January of last year. He beat Zaruk Adashev by decision. His prior fight, Malcolm Gordon, he won that fight in November of 2020. So hasn't been very active, fighting like one fight every year or so. But he won that fight against Malcolm Gordon, round one, TKO, 44 seconds. Very impressive. He has a loss against Luis Smoka, round two armbar in 2018. And he's currently 3-1 and one in the UFC. He had no amateur record, and he went pro 2016. As for Matt Snell, he had a 10-2 amateur career, a lot of amateur experience, went pro 2012. He fought Legacy FC, Summit FC, and Caged Warriors prior to being on Season 24 of The Ultimate Fighter. He made his UFC debut in 2017 with a loss against Hector Sandoval. He also fought Luis Smoka, but he won that fight via round one triangle choke. If you're doing the MMA math thing, he beat Smoka, and Sumadarji lost against Smoka. But recently for Matt Snell, it's been a little bit of a rough stretch. He's on a two-fight losing streak, lost against Brandon Royval just two months ago via a round one guillotine choke in like two minutes. His prior fight lost to Ruggiero Bontarine by decision. That was May of last year, so roughly a year ago. And then had a win over Tyson Nam by split decision. Prior fight before that, lost to Alexandra Pantoja, round one KO. He could literally be here on a three-fight losing streak. And I believe he's coming against a guy like Sumadarji who's just kind of hitting his stride. Younger, needs to be more active, yes. But a guy who's got a lot of potential, a guy that I think his arrow's pointing up, where Matt Schnell, he's kind of like idling right now. He's at the peak of his game, I believe. 
The first prop I would look at for this fight would be Sumadarji by TKO. The problem is all the meat on that bone has been chewed off. It's minus 110 right now. You got to pick a price for him to win by TKO. Now, Sumadarji by round one TKO, that's only plus 320. Clearly, the books feel like Matt Schnell's chin is a bit suspect, and at some point, Sumadarji is going to test it. The most popular way I'll bet this fight is most likely having Sumadarji in a few parlays. Hopefully, I don't over parlay him and hopefully, he doesn't let me down. I just feel like right now, this guy is on a different trajectory than Matt Schnell. For Matt Schnell, a good wrestler, a good athlete, but again, I think he's kind of peaked. At minus 250, I'm taking me a tuck of Sumadarji as a parlay piece and one of my most confident picks on the card. That's your breakdown, guys. Moving on to the next fight. Okay, moving on to the next fight. We've got Jingliang Li versus Muslim Salikov. Jingliang Li hails from China. He's 18-7 overall. He goes by the leech. 3-2 and two in his last five fights, 34 years old. 6-foot in height with a 72-inch reach, and he trains out of China top team. As for Muslim Salikov, who goes by the king of kung fu, 18-2 overall. On a winning streak currently, he's 5-0 in his last five fights. He's the favorite here at minus 175. You can get Jingliang on the other side at plus 160-ish range. Muslim Salikov hails from Russia. He's 38 years old. 5-foot 11 in height with a 69.5-inch reach, and he trains out of Nova Uniao along with Burkett FC. There'll be about a three inch reach advantage there for Lee and about a one inch height advantage for Lee. As for the numbers on Tapology, Salikov is the public favorite, getting 67% of the votes. Amon Jean Liang Lee, I was not very impressed with Muslim Salikov's last fight, especially. My eyes are telling me he's slowing down. Cardio wasn't great. I feel like if he gets into a drag it out fight, it's kind of tough that Jean Liang Lee can cause. I think he's going to be in the short end of the stick. Muslim Salikov, three, four years ago with his prime, yeah, and his record's very impressive, but doesn't fight very often and is showing all the telltale signs signs of a guy who's getting older. I think Jing Liang Li can give him some problems. He has a youth advantage, athletic advantage, and cardio advantage. As for the striking stats in these two guys, Lee's landing 4.42 per minute, absorbing 3.74. Decent volume and a positive ratio. For Muslim, landing a little less at 3.13 per minute and absorbing 2.36, but both guys have a positive striking ratio. As for takedown offense, you would think that Muslim Salikov, being the Russian, would maybe have the edge here, but not quite. Lee's averaging 1.25 takedowns per 15 minutes, and Salikov's averaging 1.12, about the same level. Salikov does have the edge in takedown defense with 81% compared to 58% for Jing Liang Lee. Muslim fought about a year ago, June of last year, won a decision against Francisco Trinaldo, older opponent, and in my opinion, Muslim Salikov slowed down. His prior fight against Zaleski, he won by split decision, a fight that some people thought he lost. His prior fight against Loriano Stapoli, he won by decision. So last three fights have got a decision. Two were really quite close, Trinaldo and Zaleski. He hasn't had a finish in almost three years, not fighting very often, fighting like once last year, once 2020. As for Lee, coming off a loss in October of last year, he was the victim of Kamzat Chemaev. Round one, he got put to sleep. Now, notably, he got put to sleep. He didn't tap out. He's a tough dude. It was three minutes in round one. Prior fight, he fought Santiago Pantanibio, beat him by a round one knockout. Santiago, getting a bit older, but still a quality opponent, lost against Neil Magny by decision. That was two years ago. Hopefully, he learned from that. But Neil Magny, is a crafty veteran. He also fought Zaleski, but he beat him round three via knockout. If you're doing MMA math, he knocked out Zaleski, whereas Salikov went to a split decision win against Zaleski. I think Jing Liang Li at plus 150-ish range is a hell of a live dog on the card. I'm not sold on Muslim Salikov. If you're betting on Salikov, I'm warning you, please be careful. There is value at minus 150 to minus 170 to minus 180, but I am not very confident, and I would implore you to please watch his last fight. He is about 38 years old, coming out of a good gym, yes, 18-2 overall record. He's got the OV at the end of the name. He's Russian. I get all that. The Chinese fighters have had a terrible run the last year or so, but Jing Liang Li is a tough guy. Not an easy out by any means, and if he fights the right fight and drags it to round two or three, he should have the athletic advantage and the youth advantage to make this fight tough for Salikov. The props I like for this fight, the fight not going to decision is minus 110. I'm a little torn, though. I can see the fight dragging out to round three. I can see Salikov getting some control time. I can see Jing Liang Li getting tired himself and not throwing accurate punches, and Muslim Salikov being able to drag the fight out himself. 
So I'm not confident in the spot, but I think at some point we see a finish. Now, Muslim Salikov by decision, that's plus 150. And that tells me the books fully anticipate that he goes to decision. He's minus 180 to win outright on the money line, and he's plus 150 to win by decision. Now, to win by TKO for Jing Liang Li just to win TKO anytime is plus 350. I wish it was more valuable, but it's probably priced about correctly. Now, a round two TKO for Li is plus 1300, and a round three TKO for Li is plus 1700. I'll play both those props, like something small, like maybe like 10, 15 bucks. My thinking there is that if Salikov does tire, and I think he's getting older, and showing cheeks in the armor and cardio is one of them that maybe get to round two or three and fatigue becomes such an issue where he balls up covers up it doesn't get knocked out like hurt knocked out but more just has to cover up and can't return fire i see jing liang lee being like a crazy monkey on top of him landing a bunch of strikes so those round two round three tko props for jing liang lee i'll sprinkle those but if you want to pass all together in this fight i get that as well i like jing liang lee at plus 150 i'm gonna bet him straight up and put a sprinkle for these props that's your breakdown boys and girls good luck with this fight Moving up the car, we're at the co-main event. We've got a women's bout in the strawweight division at 115 pounds between Michelle Waterson, who goes by the Karate Hottie, and Amanda Lemos, the Brazilian fighter who goes by Amandina. I'm not sure what Amandina means, but it sounds like some kind of version of Amanda, maybe Little Amanda or Sweet Amanda, something like that. I'm not sure, just guessing. Anyway, Lemos is 11-2-1 overall, 4-1 her last five fights. She's a big favorite currently at minus 330. She hails from Para, Brazil, 35 years old, 5'4", height rate 65 inch reach, and she trains out of Marajo Brothers team. As for Michelle Waterson, 18-9 overall, 2-3 in her last five fights, a plus 275 dog in this spot. She's based out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, 36 years old. She's 5'3 in height with a 62-inch reach, and she trains out of Jackson Wink MMA. So height reach-wise, will be a small advantage there for Amanda Lemos. As for the votes coming in on Tapology, Lemos is the big favorite, getting 86% of the votes, only 14% coming in for Watterson. This fight, to me, is the perfect bounce-back fight for Lemos, and if you're following some narratives for the UFC, I think they want Lemos to keep climbing and doing well. She's only 34. She had a hiccup in her last fight. I can see her coming back around, making another title run. The UFC wants to see her get back to her winning ways and they're serving up her opponent like Watterson that quite frankly I don't believe is on her level as for the striking stats in these two fighters Watterson's landing 3.57 per minute absorbing 4.13 okay volume but a negative striking ratio as for Lemos landing 5.14 a little more volume absorbing 4.42 so neither fighter has great stand-up defense and if you watch them both fight for the case of Lemos she throws some bombs but she leaves her head wide open in the case of Watterson nice kicking game but again, hands drop down. She also leaves herself wide open. For takedown offense, 1.40 takedowns per 15 minutes for Watterson compared to 1.22 for Lemos. Both fighters are averaging about a takedown per fight. If Michelle Watterson has a chance in this fight, here's an area where she has to exploit. She needs to get down Lemos at least once or twice in this fight, get some control time, slow things down, get Lemos off of her feet where she's most dangerous. Now, as for takedown defense, Lemos is pretty good at that. 88% to be exact and 67% for Michelle Watterson. Michelle Watterson's last fight was about a year ago against Marina Rodriguez. Marina's very hot right now, so a quality loss. Her prior fight, a split decision win over Angela Hill. And of course, they both have wins by a split decision over Angela Hill. Poor Angela. That was 2020. So if there's one thing about Michelle Watterson I don't like, it's the inactivity. She fought once about a year ago. Prior to that, about a year before that. She fought twice 2020, only once last year, twice 2019, not the busiest fighter. And of her last three fights, losses against Carla Esparza, Joanna Jacek, and Marina Rodriguez with a win by split decision against Angela Hill. She could be 0-4 in her last four fights. On the flip side, you can say, well, she's fighting very good fighters. She does have wins over Courtney Casey, Felice Herrick, Carolina Kawakazic, and losses against Tisha Torres by decision, Rose Namajunas by a rear naked choke, and also has a win over Paige Van Sant. So looking back at Michelle Watterson's topology, she's fought some very good fighters championship level fighters like Rose Namajunas. On the flip side with Amanda Lemos, she obviously fought Jessica Andrade recently. That was in April of this year. Came up short, got triangle choked, 
on the feet, a standing arm triangle in round one, kind of a slip up. She just made a mistake. Her prior fight, she won by split decision over Angela Hills. We talked about that was in December of last year. You like the fact that she's so active. This will be like her third fight in the last seven months. Now, if you want to criticize Amanda Lemos' schedule, I get it. Montrez Ruiz, Lavinia Souza, Angela Hill, Mizuki Inhu, Miranda Granger. These are her UFC wins. And again, Angela Hill was a split decision win. And she was a big favorite in that fight. So there's a lot of reasons to question Amanda Lemos' potential and where she falls. But in this matchup here, I believe the narrative that the UFC wants her to get back into winning ways. I believe she's a much better fighter than Michelle Watterson. I have her parlayed in a few different parlays. I think Amanda Lemos gets a finish here. I think she tags Michelle Watterson. She hurts her. For Michelle Watterson, look, she's now doing movies. She has a life outside the octagon. I'm not surprised if she takes an ass beat in this fight that she hangs it up and puts her gloves down. The fight goes to the decision is minus 190. In a women's bout, I usually would look at that prop as a prop I would like, but I don't think so. I think at plus 140, the fight not going to the decision is more likely. I think Amanda Lemos, who has excellent finishing power, is going to get to Michelle Waterson, and Lemos putting enough damage in her to force a TKO finish at some point. Lemos by TKO is only plus 225. So again, factor that in. The books are telling you that's a likelihood to happen. Now, Lemos to win outright on the money line, not great value, minus 330. It's a popular parlay piece. Now, that's the scariest part of this. You know people are going to be parlaying this left and right. It's at the end of the card, co-main event. You see minus 300, minus 330 range. You're a casual better. You're thinking, I'm taking Lemos. You look at Michelle Waterson. You hear the cappers out there saying, not very good, pretty girl, kind of slowing down, hasn't fought very much. Has a decent kicking game, but you know everyone's pretty much on Lemos. I just think Lemos is the much better fighter. Again, I support the narrative of the UFC. Get her back to her winning ways. Get her back in line to make another title shot in the next year or so. She's very active. She's a much better striker, much more power. I think Michelle Waterson's walking into a buzzsaw here. I like Lemos to win the fight. At minus 330, I'll be parlaying this pick. Good luck with this one, guys. And we're up to the main event. It's a featherweight bout, 145 pounds between Brian T. C. D. Ortega and Yar El Pantera Rodriguez. Rodriguez hails from Mexico. He's currently based out of Chicago, Illinois, 13-3 overall, 2-2-1 two, two in his last five fights. He's a dog here at plus 155 on the main line. 29 years old, 5'11 in height with a 71-inch reach, and he trains at a VFS Academy, which is an excellent gym down in Mexico. As for T-City, he's 15-2 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights, a favorite here at minus 180 in the money line. He's out of Torrance, California, 31 years old, 5'8 height with a 69-inch reach, and he trains at a Black House MMA. As for the public votes on Tapology, Ortega is the favorite, getting 70% of the votes. I agree. I think Yari Rodriguez has a shot, but I think the smart money here is on Ortega. Looking at the striking stats in these two fighters, Brian Ortega is landing 4.15 per minute, absorbing 6.69. At first glance, that's not a good ratio. Obviously, it's a negative ratio, and he's absorbing a lot of shots. Unfortunately, he's been in a few wars. The Volkanovski fight comes to mind. He absorbed a lot of punches in this fight. As for Rodriguez, landing 4.65 per minute, absorbing 4.09. As for takedown offense, both guys are sitting around 0 0.86, 0 0.87 takedowns per 15 minutes, which comes out to like a takedown and a half over the course of 25 minutes. I would expect DC to actually do more takedowns. You think of him as a former high school wrestler, He's more of a grappler, the kind of guy who will pull you to the ground. So that means if he gets taken down himself, he doesn't care. And that's indicative in his takedown defensive numbers. And for Rodriguez, he has 60% takedown defense. Now let's talk about Brian Ortega's recent fights. He fought Alexander Volkanovsky in September of last year. If you didn't watch the fight, you probably have heard about it. It was a damn war. He had some moments in the fight. I mean, heck, he almost submitted Alexander Volkanovsky. He had the guy's head turning purple, blue, whatever. But man, he took a fucking beating in that fight. The kind of beating that could be life-changing or career-altering. I hope it's not the case. I hope we don't see him come in here and have like concussion syndrome and, and get knocked out or something. 
A lot of people thought it should have been stopped at some point, including Volkanovski, who was like trying to show mercy on him. On the flip side, he came back at the end. I think he won the last round of that fight, showed a ton of heart. His prior fight, he fought Chan Sung Jung, won the fight by decision. That was 2020, two years ago. And that's one thing to consider for Brian Ortega. He's not very active. Now, he's not very active, I think, more by choice. And obviously, the last fight, he needed some time to recover. But he fights about once a year. Because prior to the Chan Jung Sung fight, he didn't fight at all in 2019. He fought Max Holloway in 2018. He lost that fight round four via Dr. Stoppage. Two of his last three fights, he's been in some wars. Volkanowski and Max Holloway. That, again, is a big concern. He's got a win over Frankie Edgar, 2018, via round one knockout. Beat Cub Swanson, 2017, via round two guillotine choke. Has a win over Renato Mucciano, 2017. And also has a win over Clay Guida. You know, these are decent opponents, but against elite-level guys, against the champion, Alexander Volkanovsky, against Max Holloway in his prime, came up short and almost got finished in both fights. I think he's a step over Yair Rodriguez. Rodriguez is a very good fighter, good striker. Maybe he has the striking advantage here, but when it comes to strength of schedule, who's fought the better opponent, the topology of Brian Ortega is very impressive. And the fact that he almost finished Volkanovski could very well be the champ right now if he hadn't lost that fight, obviously. As for Rodriguez coming into this fight off of a decision loss against Max Holloway, that was in November of last year. A great fight. A fight that some people actually thought he won. He busted up Holloway, put a hurting on him. He got an L that night, but his stock rose because he fought a great fight and went toe-to-toe -to -toe with a guy that we all respected, Max Holloway. His prior fight was almost three years ago. Jeremy Stevens won the fight by decision. And that was a rematch. He had fought Jeremy Stevens prior to that in 2019. That was an accidental eye gouge, whatever. They rematched it. He won by decision. He also fought Chen Sung Jung as well. Had a round five TKO win over him. He lost to Frankie Edgar, so here we're doing some MA math now. Brian Ortega beat Frankie Edgar, and Frankie Edgar beat Yair Rodriguez. He has wins over BJ Penn, Alex Caceres, Andre Feely, Dan Hooker, Charles Rosa. So quality names. Again, names you recognize. Comparing them side by side, experience-wise, you got 15-2 and two compared to 13-3. and three, Almost the same amount of fights. Both guys are very smart fighters. Good camps, good coaches. They know what they're good at, and they know how to survive when they get hurt. As for cardio, also very similar. Both guys have excellent cardio. Rodriguez against Holloway, he had high output to the very end of the fight. As for Ortega, I'll never question his cardio or his heart. He was pretty much dead against Volkanovski. His soul came back into his body, and he kept fighting. So that guy's got tremendous cardio. When it comes to finishing ability, Rodriguez has some punching power. Ortega can take a punch, though, man. He's been there with Volkanovski. He's been with tough guys. So when it comes to finishing ability, I give an edge to Ortega because of the submission ability. Rodriguez has an advantage in the striking department. He's a more technical striker, more volume. And as for grappling, there'll be a big advantage there for Brian Ortega. Even though his takedown offense is not amazing, he's crafty. He'll backpack. He'll try to get standing guillotine chokes. He'll pull guard. He'll find a way to get the fight to the ground. Now, some props I like for this fight. The fight going the distance. It is a five-round fight. Both guys have shown some durability. Both guys have a lot of heart, a lot of chin. That sitting right now currently at plus 100. I'm not sure I'm going to play it, but I just want to put it out there. I think the fight does go the full distance. A submission win by Ortega anytime is plus 250. Not going to play it. There's obviously some value there, but I think there's better value in some other props we'll talk about. Ortega to win by decision is also plus 250. So either him to win by decision or submission is plus 250. For Rodriguez to win by decision is plus 300. So if you're going with the idea the fight goes the full distance, those are some props to consider. Now the fight ends in round four for Rodriguez, which means he gets a finish in round four is plus 2,800. For Rodriguez to get a win in round five is plus 3,400. My thinking is pretty simple there. If Ortega gets beat up again, something similar in the way that he got beat up against Volkanovski, and starts getting pieced apart and begin until like a late round four, round five. I don't think the world of mixed martial arts can handle seeing him get murdered again. The referee coming into this fight already knows the protocol with him. He's not going to give up. His corner is not going to throw the towel in. And you could argue in the fight against Volkanovski, there were times in that fight where he should have been called out. For example, when he's laying on his back between rounds and his corner comes out and like actually has to pick his ass up, that should have been called at that point. 
if we get to a scenario in round four or five where it's super ugly and you've got Rodriguez putting a lot of pressure on him, laying a lot of shots, and you see Ortega getting hurt, so I can see the fight getting stopped. So round four or round five, those props for Yari Rodriguez, I'm playing both of them. Other props to consider. The fight going over two and a half rounds is minus 190. You know, it's a little chalky, but I like that prop. This fight's a five-round fight. Both guys are very durable. A round three submission win for Ortega is plus 1,700. A round four submission win for Ortega is plus 2,600. And a round five submission win for Ortega is plus 3,200. Simple thinking here, guys. Submission attacks are like Novocaine. They may not work right away, but over time, they start to work. And look back at his last fight. Ortega got his ass beat for most of the fight, but late in the fight, he had some opportunities to submit Volkanovski. He got close. Is Yair Rodriguez's submission defense as good as Volkanovski? I don't know. We're going to find out. But I can see the fight getting late. And as it gets late, get some blood, get some fatigue. Ortega finds himself in a good spot. If Rodriguez makes one small position mistake, he could give up his back or something. And so those round three, round four, round five submission props for Ortega, I'm playing those last three rounds. My strategy is, look, put 10, 15 bucks each of those props. You walk away with a few hundred bucks if you hit one. At worst, you lose all of them. You lose maybe 40, 50 bucks, that kind of thing. So it's not a big loss. In summary, guys, I like Brian TCD Ortega to get back in the winning column. I like Rodriguez too, but I think Brian Ortega has his number in this fight. I'm not going to play Ortega straight up. I don't have that kind of confidence on him on the money line at minus 165. And I may not even parlay either side of the money line, but I will play some of those props. Good luck with this fight, guys. We got Brian TCD Ortega to win the fight either by submission or decision. Let me know what you guys think. Do you guys like your Rodriguez and why? And that brings us to the end of the show, boys and girls. Let me give you a summary of our picks. We're going to start with the top. We like Brian Ortega, Lemos, Jingliang Lee, Sumadarji, Charles Jordan, Misha Tate, Puna Hale Soriano, Ricky Simone, Herbert Burns, Daun Jung, Dwight Grant, and Emily Ducote. The fights we'll be looking to parlay, the ones we have the most confidence in, on the prelim card, Puna Hale Soriano and Emily Ducote. On the main card, Misha Tate, Subadarji, and Amanda Lemos. Now, the underdogs that we like in this card, on the main card, we like Jing Liang Li at plus 155 and Charles Jordan at plus 160. On the prelim card, we like a few dogs, Ricky Simone at plus 135, Herbert Burns at plus 145, and Da Un Jung at plus 120. I also want to acknowledge that if you want to look for one more dog on the prelim card, Dustin Stolfis at plus 140 against Dwight Grant. We picked Dwight Grant in our breakdown, but it's not a spot we're very confident in. And just a reminder, again, it's an 11 a.m. start time on Saturday. So if you're like West Coast, oh my God, that's like 8 o'clock in the morning. If you don't know already, all of our bets are available online at betmi.tips. And we also put our bets up on Twitter. Our social handle information is down below. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. And we always welcome your feedback. Thanks for stopping by, guys. And best of luck for UFC ABC3 or Tega Rodriguez. Deuces.